evening. No, they're not. I don't see anyone here. I've learned the hard way to be sure that everyone can hear. So does this seem to be working? Yes. Great. So much for progress. Um, welcome to this evening's program on biography at the New School, uh, which we are, in fact, very pleased to be doing in collaboration with the Penn American Center. Um, I'm Elizabeth Dickey, and I'm the dean of the New School. Uh, and before introducing this evening's moderator, I thought I would say a word or two about the two co-sponsoring institutions. Um, the Penn Center is the largest of more than 100 centers uh, worldwide that make up International Penn, a membership association of literary writers and editors. Uh, Penn is dedicated to the freedom of expression wherever it may be threatened. And, of course, we see those threats growing uh, in, in uh, significant uh, size daily. Penn is also uh, committed to encouraging the recognition and reading of contemporary literature. Turning for a moment to the New School, uh, we were founded in 1919 as America's first university for adult students. And like Penn, we are committed to promoting freedom of expression. In addition, we are eager to promote public discourse on a wide variety of topics, especially those related to culture, politics, and public policy. This evening's program on biography is an excellent example of the kind of event we are eager to offer. We, just this evening over dinner, were talking about why, uh, why biographers are so committed to their craft in that it is a rather lonely endeavor. But obviously from uh, the publicity uh, and the coverage in the press that the, that the art and craft of biography have been realizing in recent uh, months, if not years, uh, many serious readers, uh, students of literature and the arts, are eager to learn about uh, the lives of thinking persons. We have four distinguished biographers this evening and their moderator, also a biographer, who will talk about their craft and their art. Um, in particular, uh, we have James Atlas as moderator. Mr. Atlas has played various editorial roles over the years at the New York Times Book Review, at the Atlantic Monthly, at Vanity Fair, and at the New York Times Magazine. Uh, he is the author of a biography of the poet Delmer Schwartz. And I'm delighted to present him to you this evening and to make a quick note to say, keep your eye on the New School Bulletin for Spring 92 because we will be doing more extensive coverage of matters biographical. Mr. Atlas. Thank you. Welcome to our evening on Living Lives. The uh, title, I confess, is one I dreamed up myself, uh, although I kept fretting about whether it had certain ghoulish implications and thinking of the title, Night of the Living Dead. But maybe that's because biography inevitably does provoke <clears throat> thoughts on mortality. Essentially, it's a commemorative art, 
a monument to lives that have been largely lived. And I guess that's one of its unsettling aspects. At the Times, there used to be a, a famous character named Alden Whitman who wrote the very elaborate, full-length obituaries. That was his full-time job. That was his beat, as it were. And uh, he was known around the paper, this was before my day, as Mr. Death. Uh, whenever he would call up somebody, that person clearly felt profoundly ambivalent about the call because <laughs> on the one hand it meant that he was extremely famous and on the other it meant, well, it's obvious what it <laughs> but uh, I guess maybe that's why we tend to think about biographies of living people as a particularly perilous enterprise. It, it creates a new and potentially treacherous relationship. This didn't always, uh, this wasn't always the case. Biographies used to be written by people who knew their subjects. If you think of Froude's Carlyle or Virginia Woolf's Roger Fry, especially of Boswell's Johnson, these were not panegyrics but portraits in which the figure came to life and seemed to leap from the page with the vividness of one who was known. As uh, Leon Edel put it, writing of Boswell, Johnson was actual to him. What significance does this actuality have for the craft of biography? I just wanted to read one passage to set the stage, as it were, for the evening uh, from Edel's very excellent book on literary biography. The biographer who works from life, he notes, has an extraordinary advantage over the biographer who works from the document, whether he plays scene shifter or not. He has seen his man in the flesh. He has been aware of a three-dimensional being, drawing breath and sitting in the midst of an age they both share. In his mind, he retains a sharp image of his subject. He has heard the voice and seen the gesture. And even in our age, no recording, no cinema picture can provide a substitute for that. The late-coming biographer hears only the rustle of the pages amid the silence of the tomb. Tonight we're going to talk about this experience of writing about living people, or to be exact, about people whom the subject, the biographer, has known, and how that experience enhances or complicates the, the art of biography. What the, subject, what the biographers assembled here have in common, apart from their proven excellence, is that all of them have had some personal acquaintance with their subjects. Uh, so our format will be that each will offer a brief presentation of about five minutes, and uh, then we will have uh, questions. I have a number of questions myself. And uh, also, cards have been distributed so that you can write down your questions, and uh, I will submit them to our procedure of formal review, which means I'll look through them and see which ones interest me. And, uh, <laughs> which is a, a shrewd way of forestalling any statements of what Edel calls principia biographia or other matters that, uh, in the guise of questions. So let me just introduce our four panelists now, and then they'll speak in order. Uh, and to avoid any appearance of sexism, ageism, favoritism over royalties, or any other perceived bias, we're going to go in alphabetical order with... Uh, Deidre Baer, the author of uh, a biography of Samuel Beckett that won the National Book Award in 1981, and most recently of a highly acclaimed biography of Simone de Beauvoir. Uh, Deidre is now working on two biographies of Colette and Anais Nin. And Edmund Morris will follow. He won the Pulitzer Prize for his biography of Theodore Roosevelt, 
of which two further volumes are planned, and he is Ronald Reagan's official biographer, as you all know. John Richardson, who was for many years a contributor to the New York Review of Books and is a consulting editor at Vanity Fair, is the author of a biography of Picasso, the first volume of which has just appeared uh, in England. And uh, although he said tonight over dinner that he may write four more volumes, so we'll simply have to see. Uh, he spent many hours in Picasso's company and lived in a house in Provence during the period that uh, he's writing about. And last is Sally Bedell-Smith, uh, former correspondent for the New York Times and the author of In All His Glory, a biography of William Paley, written under circumstances of such imaginable, unimaginable complexity that I'll leave her to describe them. Uh, and Sally is now at work on a biography of Pamela Harriman. So we'll begin with Dean. Can you hear? You didn't hear any of that after all that? <laughs> The last two is that the last two words. Oh, she's at work on a biography of Pamela Harriman. That's a relief. But you heard all the rest. Okay. Okay. Deirdre. Uh, thank you very much. I'm I'm delighted to be here to uh, uh, talk about my work, which actually breaks in half because uh, the first two people I wrote about, Samuel Beckett and Simone de Beauvoir were living and did cooperate with me, consented to uh, being interviewed, among other things. And the two people that I'm writing about now are long dead, and most of the people that they knew and who were important in their lives are also dead. So I have uh, two very different experiences. But I'm going to talk about the first, and I'm going to tell you, first of all, that um, I became an accidental biographer. Um, I had just taken a, a degree, uh, a doctoral degree at Columbia in English, and um, I had written a little bit in my dissertation on Samuel Beckett and decided, um, I don't know how or why, because I'd never read biography. I wasn't interested in biography. I was trained academically at the time when the new criticism was dying and French deconstruction, structuralism, whatever, was all coming into play. So I was trained that the author was dead and had no relevance, and one shouldn't look at the author. One should only look at the work. And here I was, here I found myself um, spontaneously deciding that the world did not need another study of the poet of alienation, despair, and so on and so forth. Uh, what the world needed was to know that Samuel Beckett, as I had found, so I thought, that Samuel Beckett was deeply rooted in the first 38 years of his life, in his Irish experience, uh, and that there was much to be found in his work that came directly from his life. Absolute heresy within the academy. I remember my professor, John Unterrecker, saying to me, you are committing professional suicide. You will never get a job. Well, I got a job, but it was uh, rather difficult holding on to it for a few years as I wrote that biography of Beckett. And so having decided that I was going to write this biography, then came the question, well, how do I do this? What biographies do I read? Who do I look at as my models? How do I put this life together? And I literally uh, did it as I went along. First thing I did was to write a letter to Samuel Beckett, saying, in effect, Dear Samuel Beckett, I've decided to write your biography. <laughs> or words to that effect. I really do blush to think of it now. And to my tremendous surprise, he replied to that letter, 
And because so many people have asked me about it, I memorized it, and here it goes. <laughs> Dear Mrs. Bear, my life is dull and without interest. The professors know more about it than I do. <laughs> it is best left unchampioned. All of this in very neat handwriting, and then scrawled at the bottom of the letter. Any biographical information I possess is at your disposal. If you come to Paris, I will see you. So, of course, I went immediately to Paris to see him. And then came the question of what sort of ground rules we set up. Now, I must ask you again to remember that I was terribly young, terribly naive, terribly innocent, and had no idea what sort of rules, legalities, agreements, all the rest of it, biographers uh, had to put up with, and really I mean put up with in terms of writing about someone who was alive. So he said to me, how shall we go about this? I don't want you to write it in the first place. Oh dear, said I, then I guess I'd better not, being a well brought up young lady. Well, I'm not telling you not to write it, he said. <laughs> I said, well, uh, you know, I guess what I'm asking you to do is introduce me to all your friends and your family and your business associates and just, you know, to give me access to everything you have, all of your archives, all of your documents, whatever. And he said, well, all right, I guess I could do that, words to that effect. He said, um, I will neither help nor hinder you to ensure the objectivity of your work. I will indeed introduce you to my friends, my enemies will find you soon enough. <laughs> and they did. And so I proceeded to write this book, you know, knock it off in a year, year and a half. I'd been a journalist, and I thought, two years, max, it'll be out. Uh, seven years later, <laughs> the book was, I thought, ready to go to press, and it came out about a year after that. Um, Afterwards, I was totally exhausted and thought, this is it. This is my uh, biography. I will never do another. Uh, and I went through what I call the postpartum depression of two years of doing a lot of journalism and a lot of book reviewing and avoiding all possibilities of any biography, many of which were suggested to me by actual persons or by their executors. One uh, living poet who shall be nameless said to me, it's very simple. You just write what I tell you, and then together we'll have a modern-day saint's life. And I declined that offer. But along the way, I decided that I really was interested in writing about a woman. But I wanted to write because, again, the time, the, bi the uh, chronological time, biographical time, is 1980 that I'm speaking of. And it seemed that every woman that I knew was in the process of changing her life in some way or another, either her marital relationships, her sexual orientation, her career, whatever. And I thought to myself, was there ever in our time a woman who made a success of everything, whose personal life and whose professional life were both deeply satisfying to her? And the person with whom I was having this conversation and I began to, to say, well, who are the women, you know, who might fall into this category? And we couldn't come up with anyone at all, very many people, until one of us said Simone de Beauvoir, and I thought, of course, 50 years with Jean-Paul Sartre in this perfect relationship. She told us all about it in four volumes of autobiography. All I need to do is fill in the pieces. Um, those of you who know that book know that it became quite another thing entirely. Um, 
just one last word because I know my time is running out. I just want to say that uh, when I went to her, she said uh, that she welcomed me because she knew that I would write about all of her life, not just her feminism. And it was important that people recognize that she had written plays, she had written political essays, uh, uh, novels, all sorts of writing, uh, as well as her wonderful feminist work, The Second Sex. And so she said, and of course, here's how we'll do it. I'll talk to you, and you'll write a little bit, and then you'll submit it to me, and I'll read it, and then we'll go on from there. And I could feel myself diminishing in my chair and feeling quite gloomy about this entire undertaking, especially since I had just accepted an advance and had a book contract and thought, oh dear, how do I work under these circumstances? She saw the expression on my face and she said, what's the matter? And I said, well, I didn't work that way with Samuel Beckett and I don't think I can work that way with you. I'm terribly sorry, I don't think we're gonna be able to go forward with this project. And she said, well, how did you work with Beckett? And I told her. And because they both cordially detested each other, it worked in my favor. <laughs> she said, well, if he worked with you that way, then I must do the same. And so I wrote two books under ideal circumstances, uh, having carte blanche, uh, total access to the subject, um, it was, it was a wonderful experience in both instances. One of the things that I think about now, having written about both a man and a woman, is did I ask the same questions with the same degree of intensity? Was Beckett the book of a very young writer? Was Simone de Beauvoir deeply couched in feminist theory and should I have applied a little bit more of that to Samuel Beckett? So these are some of the things that I think about, and I'm sure we'll have time to talk about them, and I will now surrender the floor. Because I think that James Atlas's um, introduction lacked reverence for our holy calling, uh, I would like to declaim a text to inspire us all. It's by a chap called Harry Graham, who wrote a book of verse called Misrepresentation on Men in 1907. It goes like this. All biographers possess, besides a thirst for information, that talent which commands success, I mean, of course, imagination, combining with excessive tact a total disregard for fact. <laughs> Since um, I uh, wrote one book about a dead person and I'm now writing a book about a live person, James thought it might be smart if I made a few comments about the contrast between the two, between dead biography and live biography. And at first all I could think of to say was that um, live is what you are when you begin a biography and dead is what you are by the time you get through with one. <laughs> I worked for almost five years on the sequel to my first uh, volume on Theodore Roosevelt, and then I was distracted from that by the irresistible opportunity to do a biography of the live Ronald Reagan, on which I have now been working um, almost six years. So by the time I'm through with Reagan, I'll probably be about as old as he is now, and by the time I get back to TR, I'll be older than he was when he was dead. One of the genuinely distressing things about writing live biography 
is that um, one inevitably spends a lot of time with uh, people who are literally on their last legs. Um, I can't tell you how many times I have emerged from Reagan's virile pres presence. At, at the age of 80, he still is a physical marvel with his thick, glossy hair and his big chest and his pink cheeks going in and out as he chews on his jelly babies. <laughs> and then I go and interview one of his contemporaries, and I hear this clanking, wheezing noise coming down the corridor. And in comes an old guy on a walker. And I have to say things like, uh, Dutch tells me you guys were on um, the track team together back in 1932. <laughs> one old man, um, this is really not funny, but <laughs> one old Hollywood producer began to die while I was interviewing him. <laughs> You know, he's 93 years old. Just three more questions, Mr. Murray. <laughs> I'm frequently reminded after sessions of this kind of a book that Ronald Searle came out with in the late 1950s, which had as its frontispiece a picture of a rather macabre-looking gentleman whose body consisted from the pelvis down of nothing but bones. And the legend on the page opposite said, no resemblance t intended in this book to any persons alive or half dead. <laughs> <clears throat> in contrast, when one researches the life of a dead person, someone whose flesh and frailty is not in the way to distract you, one tends to begin at the beginning and seek out the child as father to the man. The problem with live biography is that you are generally dealing with old people, an old subject, and the old person um, with his or hers uh, evasions and frailties and lapses of memory and outright, outright lies. The old person gets in the way of the young person, and you tend to see the father as there is, as the you, you you forget you are unable to see the child because of the overwhelming presence of the father, and it's very hard to remember that behind this or that old person is the young man uh, full of smarts and ardor, or the exquisite young ballerina, or the angry young man in the ghetto. The present frailty is a great. Um, screen between the essential truth of a person. And that is a distraction that all biographers of life people have to bear in mind. On the other hand, one can, if one is dealing with a live subject, develop a viva voce intimacy with one's subject that one could not have with a dead person. Um, frequently, when I was writing about Theodore Roosevelt, I, I had this neurosis that some huge person with a vacuum cleaner had been in the archive before me and had sucked out of it every single document that was going to be of real importance. For example, the great coal strike conference of 1902 when for the first time a president stepped in between labor and capital. It was an intensely dramatic confrontation. It took place in October 1902 in the, in the White House. 
There were 43 people present, and not one of them kept any kind of record of that event. So here I'm confronted by a vacuum. With an old person who's still alive, I can at least get live memory. Another great advantage of being the biographer of a live person is that if you do develop some sort of intimacy with um, your subject, and your subject happens to be one of those brilliant butterflies whose real charm is in conversation and inspirational talk rather than documents. People, for example, like um, Desmond McCarthy or Clarence King. Um, one can uh, dramatize the brilliance of their conversation. One such person was Alice Roosevelt Longworth, whom I only got to know as a very old lady when she was really semi-senile. But a chap called Michael Teague got to know her in the early 1970s and spent, had tea with her for almost 10 years, during the course of which time he tape recorded the old lady as she darted like a butterfly from one flower to another. And he combined this mass of tape recordings into a really exquisite little book called Conversations with Mrs. L, which captures the rich eccentricity of her conversation as no literary book ever could have. So we balance our problems and our, our benefits together and um, ultimately we all face the final question that must face all biographers. Is it possible to recreate life on the dead black and white page? Artist biographies pose very special problems, none more so than Picasso's. A major, a major problem in Picasso's case is that over and above the paradoxes of his work, the paradoxes, we have to come to terms with the paradoxes of his character, the twists and turns in his black Spanish psyche, he could be pathologically generous, he could also be pathologically mean. He could be, he was exceedingly tender, he was also exceedingly cruel, sometimes simultaneously. He was infinitely courageous in his art, he, but he was far from courageous in his private life. He could be wisdom itself, but he could also be childish, childishly silly. He was by turns reclusive and gregarious, shy and outgoing. In my experience, he was an extraordinarily affectionate, if somewhat sardonic, friend. But like St. Peter, he could deny those who were close to him. Now, how is one to make sense of all this? Such a range of antithetical qualities condemns most people to uh, life in a lunatic asylum. Not, however, Picasso. In his case, it made for genius, thereby creating enormous problems for his biographer. Picasso's anomalies are the reef on which so many previous studies of his life and work have come to grief. And then there are the semiologists who've tried to take over, who consider biography utterly disreputable. They like to study an artist's work in an intellectual vacuum, 
outside the context of his or her life. This is simply not possible with Picasso, who saw his life as a form of autobiography. And oh, how he would have loathed their approach. The work of certain artists lends itself, it is true, to being studied in isolation. Picasso's great friend, Braque, for instance, his life seldom impinges on his work, uh, beyond the fact that he was trained as a craftsman, was seriously wounded in World War I, that his politics steadily drifted to the right, and that he became uh, something of a Zen Buddhist. That's really all we need to know about his life. Uh, but again, Braque's work is so much to do with the beauty of paint allied to texture that semiologists are baffled and it seems to me that they can tell us less about Braque than old-fashioned formalists uh, to whose ideas Braque's work was very well attuned. Um, when asked about methodology, I must confess that I have absolutely none. Picasso was so protean that I've constantly had to apply different means to get at the truth. I've had to immerse myself in all kinds of unfamiliar areas, uh, Catholic iconography, theories of the fourth dimension, fortune-telling, symbolist poetry, turn-of-the-century cabaret performers, Nietzsche, 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 and much more besides. And then, having mugged up yet another subject, I, one has to see how Picasso has cannibalized things, how he's Picassified them, how he turns them upside down. Also, how he uses the same thing, whether it's a guitar, a wine bottle, or a bull, to mean totally different things, antithetical things, usually, in different circumstances. And much the same applies to his quotes. You can almost always find, if you look hard enough, that his quotes contradict each other. For instance, his famous axiom, I do not seek, I find, Picasso once told me he'd forgotten which way it went. <laughs> and he said, anyway, it doesn't matter. <laughs> and so I've done my best to honor his sense of paradox, to realize that what I write about him has to allow for the reverse um, uh, to be equally true. And by the same token, token, I learned as much, if not more, from the legends, a polite word for lies, that Picasso and his entourage put in circulation, as I did from his truths. Picasso, often painted in paradoxes, would have liked that. Truth is a lie, truth is a lie, his son well remembers him saying when he was sitting on his knee as a child. And in writing my book, I tried to bear this in mind, uh, tried to bear in mind that every statement had to allow for a verso, several versos, as well as a recto. Everything had to work upside down as well as the right way up. Now, this is a problem that I think only Picasso's biographer has to face. I don't know that any of you have had the same horrendous problems that I've had. We've had other let's problems. get into that. The other thing <laughs> I would like to just mention briefly is the terrible problem of ayant droit in, in, in France. That is to say that when you 
want to consult somebody's archives, when you want to read Apollinaire's letters, if they've not been previously published, you have to get permission from the heir of Apollinaire or Machakov, the heir, and also from the person to whom the letter was addressed or by whom the letter was written. And you then, uh, this is before, just to read the thing, you then get to have, have to have these permissions all over again when you want to publish them. And this seems to be a major problem that all of us uh, are faced with. Well, the, the niche that I occupy this evening is that of the bi <clears throat> biographer who undertakes to write not only about a living subject, but without having official authorization. It's a challenging experience, I can tell you. Not without its share of frustration, but it also can be quite liberating. First, a word about terminology. I prefer to consider myself an independent writer because the terms authorized and unauthorized have both acquired a somewhat pejorative taint. I also think that independent more accurately describes what I do, which is to explore the subject of my work, to dig beneath the surface, to penetrate the myths, or as John called them, often the lies, and to analyze the events and the relationships that shape an individual. In doing so, I follow the compass of my curiosity, sift through the evidence, and form judgments about my subject. One of the joys of this approach is the opportunity to examine the lives of collateral characters, as well as the social and cultural forces that influence the subject of the book. Frequently, I feel like a detective following leads to people and places I didn't even know existed. Sometimes sources that even the subject has long forgotten or somehow submerged. This is part of the biographer's charter, which is to form the connections that can make sense of a life. The work of an authorized biographer of a living subject, I think, is necessarily more directed and more limited. By providing letters and official papers, and by agreeing to extended interviews, the subject can often select the paints and brushes for his own portrait. The result is, in many cases, flattering, just as when the artist working on a commission paints the subject as he wants to be seen. The two subjects that I've chosen to, to write about, Bill Paley and Pamela Harriman, are rich and powerful individuals, each of whom has long been accustomed to having his or her own way. Control, in both cases, is a very important character trait. And each of them, on learning of my project, adopted the defensive strategy of commissioning an authorized biography. <laughs> That's their right, of course, and I don't view it as much of an impediment. Difficulties do arise when someone tries to block an independent biographer by asking friends and family not to cooperate. This, I think, is folly, because what it ends up doing is silencing those most willing to speak well of the subject, because those with negative views will agree to talk anyway. I think Bill Paley recognized that, and the position that he took was a sensible one. 
When I contacted various friends of his, they would usually call him. His response was essentially, do what you feel you should do. Some of them stopped right there and chose not to talk, but many others did agree to meet with me. A significant problem for a biographer of a living subject, whether it's independent or not, is a natural reluctance of many people to speak candidly. This is particularly true when the subject is wealthy and powerful. The fear of retribution, whether it means being socially ostracized or cut out of a will, is very real. While it's important to get as many people speaking on the record as possible, a biographer often has to grant confidentiality to protect sources. In the case of my book about Bill Paley, there are about a half dozen key sources who spoke to me initially on background, with the condition that I return to them later if I wanted to put their comments on the record. And I'm happy to say that in the end, every one of them agreed to do so. Persistence is obviously essential for the independent biographer. For my Paley book, I went back to people over and over to convince them to keep talking. Not only did I want to jog their memories, but I also needed to judge the veracity of their answers, whether or not they had an ax to grind or whether they could give me a dispassionate view. I was always looking for the right question, pushing and probing until I found the button that opened the lock and revealed someone's true feelings about Paley. Yet one of the great pitfalls, of course, for all of us is that the human memory is a faulty guide. Sometimes I found that recollections could be off as much as 20 years. So that's why it's essential to use archival material and the historical record to accurately chronicle events and to guide interviews. One of the most gratifying comments I heard after my Paley book was published came from Irene Selznick, who was a longtime friend of his and who took a good two years to convince finally to talk to me. Several weeks before she died at age 83, she said, by the end, you began to be aware of who spoke the truth and who did not. If enough people talk, the truth will come out. Bill Paley's used to having his own way. I think it's high time that the curtains were lifted. Thank you. Well, all, all of you touched on certain issues that I had also been thinking about. And one I want to, to clarify at the beginning was this distinction between the biography of a living person and of a dead person. Uh, clearly, I, I think Edmund said something about the nature of imagination or cast aspersions on it one way or the other. Uh, but we do, uh, biography is in a way an imaginative art, however factual, we, we try to make it. And yet, uh, with a subject like Henry James by Edel or Proust by George Painter, it really is the biographer's subject in a certain way that it never can be with a living person. And one thing I want to inquire further about was, how does this living person intrude on the way you work with the, the material? Is it uh, inhibiting? 
to know this person. Certainly the advantage of testimony is very great, as several of you have noted. But what is it like to have the interposition of this uh, reality in the form of your subject still on the scene? Well, I, I mean, it is an inhibition because you know that in all likelihood it will be read by the subject. And um, I suppose one's first instinct is to think about pulling punches when you, when you um, come upon things that shatter myths or... Well, you don't, but some... Well, <laughs> no, I did. I mean, and and um, I think the, the more the evidence builds, um, the more difficult it is to do that. And, if, you know, if, if, if you have an accumulation of evidence that's, um, that's pushing you in one direction, you'd be intellectually dishonest if you ignored it. But, um, but it is difficult. And it's something that you're always thinking about. What about you, uh, Edmund? Do you have this with Reagan? Is there, a, uh, is there some agreement that you have? About, uh, when you say that your book is official, what does that... Wh when you say that your book is official, what kind of, uh, of uh, agreement do you actually have with him in, in terms of material? Well, surprisingly, I have no agreement whatsoever. Um, there was a certain agreement that I had to abide by when I went to the White House simply because of security considerations, but um, uh, to Reagan's credit and to your probably, to probably to your surprise, neither he nor Nancy ever have raised the subject of wanting any kind of control over what I write or wanting to see what I write. Um, they've given me carte blanche to talk to their family and their friends and um, their enemies, and I have the most magical freedom to um, shoot my pen off in any direction. Um, the question of authorization when you really are uh, subject to the approval of, um, of um, one subject is, I think, um, insupportable to any honest writer. People do write biographies under these sort of restrictions, and good luck to them. I could not possibly do that. There is another inhibition one feels, even when one has total freedom, and that is that biographers inevitably start finding out some very tender things about their subjects. Mm -hmm. um, and you are confronted uh, frequently in an interview with um, the, the task of apprising your subject with what you found out. And with old people, in fact, I don't know why I'm stressing age so much because we are all at whatever age in life um, sensitive about this or that aspect of, of, of ourselves, to confront um, people with uh, unpalatable or difficult truths is very painful. And um, for example, my own wife who's writing a biography, um, I won't go into too many details about the confrontation, but she had to confront Claire Booth Luce with something which was excruciatingly painful. And I, was, I happened to be there witnessing the exchange. And um, Mrs. Luce looked like she'd been um, whipped across the face. Mm. However, one has to do this in order to get the truth. If I the don't. truth is there to be found. It hurts. It hurts. <laughs> it hurts. <laughs> when I went to see Saul Bellow uh, a few weeks ago, he said that he had to go to the dentist first, and that I could come over afterwards. I said, the dentist and the biographer in one day. <laughs> 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 Which did he prefer? <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, this, this uh, 
brings me to, the, to uh, a related issue, and that is that, that when you deal with a living subject, you become, the biographer becomes a character in this drama too, whether or not the biographer is on stage, as Boswell was telling you that, uh, that he had dinner with him and so on, or not, you still, your own relationship creates uh, a separate drama that has to be dealt with. Don't you find that? That, uh, that creates a separate drama that has to be examined in one way or another in the biography, or that finds its way, finds expression in the biography. Yes. Well, in, in my case, <clears throat> I met both Samuel Beckett and Simone de Beauvoir uh, at the end of their lives. I, I had really, uh, Beckett, of course, did live another 10 years after my book was published. Uh, I had expected that Simone de Beauvoir would live. She died uh, quite suddenly uh, as I was about two-thirds of the way finished with the writing. And in the case of Beckett, I, I made up my mind that I would not permit myself to be a character in his life because our relationship was purely professional. Uh, to the end of his days, we were Mr. Beckett and Mrs. Bear. Um, we regarded his life almost as this object that was on the table before us that we were both examining. And I felt that I had no role in this man's personal life at all, so it would be presumptuous of me to put myself into the text, the written text of it. And so I kept myself out of it. With Simone de Beauvoir, I uh, had a, a quite different experience because, um, again, perhaps because she was a woman, perhaps because I was older and more sophisticated in the technique of biographical interviewing, biographical methodology such as it is, uh, I, I pressed her harder and I asked uh, more personal questions, I asked more difficult questions, I asked different questions of her than I asked of him. Part of that was because she lived her life in the public eye. He lived his very privately. Uh, so I felt that I had not only the right, but the obligation to press her harder in a number of instances. But also, um, towards the end of her life, the, the, actually the last conversation that she and I had together, we were arguing uh, over her relationship with Sartre, which she insisted was purely, totally, and entirely perfect, and which I had many, many questions about. And I, I heard myself say something in that conversation that I never, ever thought I would say, because the agreement was that she wouldn't read the book until it was published, that it would be my biography. And suddenly I turned to her and I said, you know, we have so many differences of opinion here. We have the autobiographer, Simone de Beauvoir, who wrote her memoirs, which the biographer, Deirdre Baer, disputes, which the character, Simone de Beauvoir, uh, interprets, uh, adds uh, further uh, detail to, explains, uh, explicates, so on. I said, we're creating here a multi-layered text. I'd better let you read what I've written. I'd better put you right into the pages of that book. Pages of that book. And I remember she clapped her hands together and she said, we're creating a hall of mirrors here. We have you and me and my written word and our spoken word and our disagreements. We have all of this in the book. And at that point, I thought to myself, oh my goodness, what have I done? This book is already so enormous, this manuscript. I will never get this uh, published ever because we will be arguing, she and I, 
to the end of our days over the final version of her life. And uh, to my great regret, I must say, she died three weeks later, and I was never able even to try to incorporate this new kind of biographical cooperation into the text. So with that book, too, the only place I'm found is in the footnotes where I believe that she said something so uh, marvelously revealing or truly wonderful that I had to put in her words and my reaction to it. So you have two texts there in that book. You have uh, the written fabric of her life uh, in the text itself, and then in the footnotes you have what amounts to my rapport, my relationship with her. But, yeah, did you well, I, I, I mean, I, I feel very uncomfortable injecting myself into a book like that. I think the role of the biographer in, in extends only as far as, as making some judgments based on all the evidence that one has accumulated. The biographer's in this extraordinary position of talking to a multitude of people. I talked to, I don't know, something like 275 people and did almost 700 interviews. And, and, and you know, people who knew Bill Paley from every possible vantage point. And there you are with, with, with this kind of mosaic of impressions from which to draw. And um, you can't, at the end of the day, present them as you would in a newspaper story or even a magazine story. On the one hand, on the other hand, you have it's your obligation to pull them together, to make sense of them, to try and draw some conclusions, make some judgments, make some very tough calls when it's necessary, uh, give credit where it's necessary. But you have people who may know somebody in a in a very segmented way. Babe Paley, for example, knew very little about Bill Paley, the businessman. Frank Stanton, who knew Bill Paley intimately as a businessman, knew hardly anything about his personal life. And yet, from from you know extensive conversations with people who knew a lot about the marriage and extensive conversations with him about about um, his business life you're able to somehow pull them together and I think the whole question of making judgments is important for a biographer um, without necessarily interjecting yourself as I mean I think Boswell and Johnson were such an extraordinary combination of two forceful characters who spent 20 years of their life together and, and it, you know and, and the Right. Personalities of both were intrinsic to the quality of the work. But don't you think that that relationship exists, whether it's in, whether it's stated or not? In other words, the mm-hmm. fact that you choose people who oppose your biography in a way creates a certain kind of tension that I suspect is very different from a book where you work in collaboration with the subject. Well, what you do is you have to you have to keep any feelings of possible antagonism at bay and you have to be as open-minded as possible and, and, and as fair-minded as possible and just try and, 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 and brush those other considerations aside. It can, be, it can be difficult, but I think it's very important to do it to come up with something that's fair. And it isn't necessary. A lot of people ask me when I'd finished the, the book, did you like him? Didn't you like him? Um, it's almost irrelevant. I think what you have to be absolutely um, intrigued by is the story, and the story is what has to propel you. It has to engage you, and 
And that's, that's what's exciting about it. And, um, and the judgments you have to make, but whether you would like this person or not, I think is irrelevant. Um, I'd kind of like to hear what John has to say about affection. And, um, about uh, what? Yes. About affection, um, the, the well, dangers of it. Um, Did you develop an affectation? Uh, well, affection? I was in the... <laughs> Uh, we all do that. <laughs> we all do that. Uh, I, I was in a very lucky position in that I knew Picasso very well for about 12 years and knew where all the bodies were buried. I loved him dearly. I was very fond of his wife. And uh, I was in a good position to, to see him in old age and from that to learn what he must have been like 50, 60, 70 years earlier. Um, uh, uh, so that was an enormous advantage. Another enormous advantage was the fact that he had died before I started on the book. And so I could write pretty well what I wanted. I could never have written what I did uh, if Picasso or Jacqueline had been alive. Uh, they would have uh, not liked it. Picasso, while being, uh, seeing his work as being autobiographical, did write a lot of his autobiography in code. And what was difficult and very important to do was to crack the code to see when he was being absolutely straightforward and telling the truth about this or that woman or when he was saying terrible things in uh, symbolically, allegorically whatever it was and uh, he, he liked people to understand his work uh, he liked to feel that he had, there was an audience out there who knew what he was up to but he didn't like them to crack these very personal codes and uh, I don't think in my book that I've done anything in a way which would, I, uh, I think it's, it's fair. I, as I say, I was very, very, very fond of him. Uh, uh, but I don't think that's affected my judgment. I s loved him warts and all. And he was, let's face it, he had a rather uh, Arab uh, uh, attitude towards women. On the other hand, I've seen him be incredible. <laughs> he was... He, not for nothing was he an Andalusian, born in 1881. He was, uh, came of a, of a, uh, from a part of the world where machismo was invented, where the mirada fuerte, this, this strong gaze that you could have a woman by looking at her, that this was all important to him. He liked his, one of his wives. He, he wanted her to cover herself up in black veils so that men couldn't have her with their eyes. And uh, all this was... Was, was part of him. You couldn't expect him to have other attitudes given where he came from and when he was born. And what is surprising about him is this extraordinary tenderness that he also had towards women. That what was frightening was that the tenderness and the, and the cruelty very often went hand in hand and he seemed, you felt that he was, he was somehow um, expressing both these attitudes towards the woman and also very often expressing both these attitudes in his work, which is what gives his work this extraordinary tension. And this, of course, is why it is crucial in Picasso's case to know about his life, to know about the women, the character of the women, what he felt about the women, if the woman was ill. I mean, all these things which are very important to, to our understanding why, at one moment, she is being turned into the mountain that rears up behind her, and looking very doleful, or why she is radiant and a kind of goddess on a plinth. And all these, these, these things obviously relate to his feelings for her. And I think that, it's, uh, that uh, most 
biographies of artists uh, fail uh, because either they concentrate too much on the scandalous life or too much on the the boring stylistic development. But to get the two to impinge and sort of grip each other, that seems to me what is important, and that's what I've tried to do. Thank you. I'd like to turn to, to, uh, again, to this aspect of of the comparison between the the living subject and the dead. You've described, John, what it's like to have have been uh, in close proximity to your subject, and both of you have written about subjects you knew and subjects you didn't know. Could you describe what in particular it gives you to know the person? What is the texture of, 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 how does the texture of a biography change when you've known this person, apart from the, the testimony that they can supply? Yeah. Well, um, let me start by talking about Anais Nin, whom I'm writing about now. Um, I'm uh, reading her original diaries. These are the ones from which the published diaries were taken. And in many instances, they diverge uh, from the published uh, written version. Um, there are a lot of uh, aspects of these diaries that I'd like to ask her about. She's written at great length her relationships uh, with many people who are very important in our literary history. They haven't written of their relationships with her. They're dead. I only have her written testimony. Um, I'm, I'm almost a little bit too late. There aren't enough people still alive who knew her in those magical 1930s in Paris or uh, those great years of the 1940s in Greenwich Village uh, during the war or when she went to California in the 60s or the 70s. I don't have their spoken testimony. Uh, I call that putting the flesh upon the skeleton. If I have the written record, certainly I can, I can create uh, a text that I hope will be uh, interesting and dynamic and alive. But I don't have that bon mot. I don't have that phrase. I don't have that, that offhand judgment, uh, that throwaway sentence that suddenly captures everything that there is. And there's a kind of dynamism uh, which up to this point uh, is missing for me. And I think about it every day. I think about it every day as I work with written records. How am I going to get that vitality that I think the other two books had because I had so many interviews with so many living people who were major players in the lives that I wrote about? You know, I think it is quite possible to know somebody without even having met them. And conversely, I think it's possible to be um, closely physically associated with somebody and not know the first thing about them. Um, I remember a rather weird um, thing that happened to me when I first saw Theodore Roosevelt in a motion picture. Um, Having written this book about his youth, about his pre-presidential life, spent four years on it, gotten intimately to know him, I thought, through the documents he produced, studying pages that his hand had pressed, um, actually holding between my fingers a lock of his young wife's hair. Um, Suddenly flickering on the screen, I see the live 
Theodore Roosevelt, photographed in 1912. And I, I turned around to hide from him. I really was um, afraid of the physical reality of this man that I knew so vividly in my imagination. And to this day, I find it very difficult to watch him moving on a screen. I don't know if that's um, an indication that um, perhaps I'm not interested enough in the truth of him, but I just find that certain illusions have to be preserved in order to see a character whole. Uh, a certain distance must obtain. Um, whereas with the case of somebody like Ronald Reagan, who's overpoweringly physical, when one's in his presence, particularly when he's president of the United States, I mean, the impact of this guy coming in through the door is uh, extraordinary. His um, physical, palpable personality is so overwhelming that, in a way, it adds as an inhibition to, to the truth of him. And one wants to retreat from that for the opposite reasons. One just wants to retreat in general at times. Can I say <laughs> yeah. um, I... In the, I had, in the course of my reporting about broadcasting, had had occasion to meet Bill Paley from time to time, but there was one incident that really propelled me into doing a biography of him, and that was in 1985 when Ted Turner was thinking about thinking, making a very concerted effort to take over CBS, and in the middle of it all, Bill Paley had remained quite silent. And at one point, um, I got a summons from the PR person at CBS that um, Bill Paley was going to consent to an interview. And so I scurried over there as fast as I could and was ushered into his uh, legendary office, which looked more like the living room of an English country house. Hmm. And uh, it was filled with glorious art and lots of cozy sofas. And there he sat on the sofa, um, with his reading glasses on and a single sheet of paper in his hand. And I sat down opposite him, and he proceeded to read a statement to me. And I said, well, all right. And I started to ask him some questions. And he said, no, 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 there won't be any questions. And so I figured, well, I better do something about this. And we spent the next 15 or 20 minutes talking about his art and talking about his travels and talking about his friends. And at the end of it, as I walked out, I thought, this is really extraordinary. Instead of sending this piece of paper over to me at the New York Times, he constructed an imperial audience. And that, more than anything else, any other encounter I'd ever had with him at press conferences and other events, was a very revealing moment. And in the course of time, I had lunch with him a few times, and um, in each and in, in each instance, um, although I couldn't pretend to say that I had spent a lot of time with him, there was a, a, a glimmer of insight that he probably inadvertently revealed just by um, being in my presence. And, and, of course, the most overwhelming thing that I was able to see was the force of his extraordinary charm. And so this if you can have even close encounters <laughs> like this, is important for a living, you know, a biographer of a living subject. Did you ever feel that there were questions you couldn't ask, though? Was there ever any sense that 
uh, of where the the boundaries of privacy are? Well, with him, it was, it, he was not the sort of person that you could have a confrontational interview with. You could not sit there and say, on um, June 23rd, 1925, you supposedly did this, but I happen to know that you did something else. You know, he would he would clam up immediately. So you had to sort of sidle into issues and and sort of extract little little quotidian bits. And they were very important and very, you know, very helpful in kind of rounding out that aspect of his personality. But you just knew going in that you would get nowhere um, mm. by taking that approach. Deirdre, why don't you tell us what uh, uh, Beckett thought of your biography, and then we'll uh, take some questions from the floor. Well, um, the book was published in 1978, and of course I sent him the second copy, copy off the press, keeping the first for myself. And uh, he wrote me a letter. He, uh, he said that um, he had told me, and he had told many other people, that he never read anything that was written about him. But I found, again, the revealing moment that Sally has just mentioned. Every now and again, a phrase would drop from his lips that had been coined by some <laughs> critic or scholar whom I had just read. And he knew this, and he knew that I knew it, too. And so there was this facade of my pretending that I didn't see that or hear it. So to go back to when I sent him a copy of my book, he sent me a letter in which he said, uh, Dear Mrs. Bear, seems a very handsome-looking book. <laughs> but uh, a couple of things after that, uh, some people who were upset that I had written the book that they hoped to be anointed to write uh, were complaining about my book, and he cut them short. He said, this book is rooted in reality, which is a, a phrase that a number of people had told me, and I, I really do treasure that phrase. And then came 1981, when he published a work called Company. Now, remember, my book was published in 1978, and I had an anecdote in that book. When Beckett was a very small child, he would climb a, up a very high pine tree, and he was about five or six years old, and he'd throw himself down, spread-eagled, thinking that he would fly uh, and hoping that he would fly, and of course he didn't, and the lower branches generally broke his fall, at which point his mother would get one of the branches of this already offended tree and whip him, hoping that he wouldn't do it anymore, but of course he did. That anecdote went in and out of my book at least five or six or seven times, and finally I left it in because I said it shows the development of his antagonism towards his mother at a very early age. This is one of the first examples of him pitting his will against his mother's will, and therefore it belongs in the book. In 1981, he published Company, and in that prose work, he used that anecdote almost word for word as I wrote it. Wow. <laughs> and so I don't know, was the subject of the biography having a good laugh at his biographer? Or was something in his memory uh, unleashed by my biography? Or did it simply come to him out of the blue because he never read my biography at all? And I never had the nerve to ask him, and I <laughs> deeply regret it. <laughs> Thank you. Story. Well, uh, I think we're going to take written questions, are we not? Uh, now, they, I can't do anything about that. That's, that's, Pamela, did you hear that they're freezing? The audience is freezing. 
get Sally uh, to give you some anecdotes these, from, uh, <laughs> from her book about Pamela Harriman. That'll heat up the atmosphere. <laughs> these, these questions from the floor, I've seen uh, Bello uh, do this. Yes, you can. <laughs> anecdotes about Pamela Harriman yeah. would heat up. But uh, I used to think that Bello was making up these questions. Especially like when he got one that said, what are you doing after the evening performance? <laughs> but uh, anyway, these are for, I feel like these are contestants. Uh, uh, but we'll quickly look through these. And uh, I feel like we're, we're voting here. Here's a good one. This is for Edmund Morris. Does he or doesn't he dye his hair? <laughs> 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 Why didn't I think of that? We've obviously been on too high a plane here. Well, the answer to that is very simple. I've checked his hair out at very close range. It's very gray now. But when he was president, I gave him the, the ocular treatment, and I can tell you that um, he had a strange um, juxtaposition of dark hairs and gray hairs, literally one on one on one on one on one. And if that's a dye job, uh, I'd like to know how it's done. There are many physiognomic and physiological questions about Reagan here. How does he keep in such good shape? How does he what? How does he keep in such good shape? Nautilus uh, machine. Yeah. Uh, a nut, Reagan keeps in shape with a Nautilus He put three machine. inches on his chest in the White House. We should do that. Now... Speak for yourself. <laughs> these questions really ought to be signed. But... Uh, Maybe I should read them, and then the person should be made to stand up and, and identify himself. But uh, this is actually a very profound question in a way. Uh, how, does, how did Miss Bear feel unprofessionally about Miss de Beauvoir's sudden death? You could um, answer that question, too. Yeah. <laughs> how did I feel? Well, I had been with her three weeks before she died uh, and came back and... Uh, uh, I was at a conference at Stanford University uh, because her sister had been invited to have an exhibition of her paintings. Her sister, Hélène, is quite a talented painter. And I saw Hélène walking towards me. It was our first meeting at Stanford, and I knew something was wrong. And she told me that her sister was ill and that she was going to die, but because no one was supposed to know about this, the two of us kept up this front uh, throughout this three- or four-day conference and then uh, she died literally while I was in the air flying home uh, to New York. And I went to Paris to the funeral. And because I knew that I would have to write about this funeral, I was really like a journalist taking notes. And then I came home and three or four publications asked me to write something at once about her death and about her funeral. And so I did that. And so we're talking about the time from April 14th till about the end of June before I could literally catch my breath. And suddenly I realized she's dead and I'll never see her again and there was just this moment of deep profound sorrow on my part I had thought that I had this uh, professional objective relationship with this woman and uh, when she died I it, it just it, at that time in early summer there was um, it was it was deeply deeply distressing and moving to me and it took me a while to gear up and get going again it was really, it was truly awful. I had not expected it. Um, well, <clears throat> mine was um, 
um, a, an eerie um, coincidence of timing, um, which was that my book, which was that my book came out last October, and appeared in the bookstores in New York literally um, on the day that he died, and um, it was uh, unnerving to say the least. And uh, especially so because my phone started to ring off the hook and people wanted me to come on various talk shows and, and, and give my thoughts about him. And, and, um, and I thought that it was totally inappropriate to do that. And, um, and, and I was so thrown by the, by the coincidence of it all that I basically left town and, um, and, and ducked it all because I thought it was inappropriate since it um, was a biography that that um, did to some extent disassemble his myth and I thought that when someone dies that it's an appropriate time for eulogizing and it certainly wasn't an appropriate time for me to talk about any critical aspects of his life and, um, and I did feel um, a, a sadness because one of the strangest phenomena of writing a Biography is that this person does inhabit you, and you spend um, your waking hours and sometimes your sleeping hours um, uh, thinking obsessively about this person. And he had been ill on a number of, of, of occasions, and one of his salient character traits, with, which John knows well, was his vitality and his ability to surmount these uh, physical difficulties that had afflicted him in the past um, 10 years of his life. And I had been following sort of the progress of this, of this illness, and um, although it seemed more grave than the previous ones, I was fully convinced that he had this iron will that would sufficiently um, propel him toward his... Um, his 90th birthday and the opening of the museum of new museum of broadcasting, which was his great monument, and um, so I was I was really um, stunned when he when he when he died and and sad because he had become um, a part of my life. It's a it's a it's a very strange feeling to be um, so inextricably caught up with the life of somebody who um, is not only many generations removed from you, but, um, but culturally and um, um, socially and in every other way, um, it, just a, a, a different sort of person. And, and so it was a, it was a, it was a very strange, um, ambivalent time for me. Uh. John, what are the uh, difficulties peculiar to writing about an artist as opposed to writing about a literary figure? Well, I think the main, the main difficulty is that unless you're going to have hundreds and thousands of colored reproductions, it's very difficult to, uh, in, to give a, verbally uh, an indication of stylistic developments, which is not going to bore everybody to tears. And uh, this, was, this was my main problem, was to try and... and trace the, the, the life and the, the work in terms of each other in a lucid way without getting lost in all uh, kinds of abstruse um, art historical jargon which would have put off a great many readers. And I think few people have succeeded in doing it. I think people either, either um, the books uh, on art has become too scholarly, too abstruse, only of interest to other art historians, 
or they become too sensationalist and, and, and gossipy. And uh, it, it is very, very difficult to write about works of art uh, in a vivid and lucid way and link them seamlessly with the developments in the life. Uh, what are the risks of being sued for libel or slander? <laughs> Enormous. <laughs> yeah. There's only one insurance man, I think, now in America who will take, it, take you on. And, uh, Can you give me his name and address? At a prohibitive price. Yes. How do you convince a subject to cooperate? We have our ways. <laughs> This is for me. Is humor a way of being elusive? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, let's see. Where on the spectrum would you put Kitty Kelly? <laughs> These are good questions. Okay, so why doesn't someone answer that? Not Must me. Must we? <laughs> well, no, right. that's not fair. They well, I know. think when I when I spoke earlier about the sort of pejorative taint that it attached itself to the word unauthorized, I think that probably springs from that whole experience because it was so flamboyantly un- unauthorized, and um, it's un- and I think it's unfortunate. I've I've run into a couple of instances where people have said. Are you doing a Kitty Kelly? <laughs> so you sort of have to. Yes, there is a hostility to our profession, mostly on the part of our subjects. But. Yeah. Yes, Edmund? I, I didn't hear the question. Kitty Kelly. <laughs> well, I guess I did. <laughs> um, she writes her kind of book, and we write ours. That's really all I want to say about it. Um, but I will remark that somebody's just done a Kitty Kelly on Kitty Kelly, and it didn't sell too many copies. Uh, well, uh, isn't sex an element in your agenda? <laughs> <laughs> this is a panel on biography. <laughs> well, the answer is surely yes, isn't it? <laughs> yes. Especially with... with um, there is a way to yeah. talk about that. Yes. I, I want to answer that in a slightly different way. I, I wrote about um, Simone de Beauvoir, and I, she was a woman, and I thought, like most women, uh, did menstruation bother her? Did it keep her one week of the month from working? Uh, when she went through the menopause, did she have hot flashes? What was her own view of her sexuality? These are things that I thought about and didn't have the nerve to ask her until one day... A throwaway question, I said to her, that's a very attractive ring you wear on the third finger of your left hand. Oh, she said, Nelson Algren gave me that ring and proceeded to tell me the entire story of her relationship with Nelson Algren, including the fact that she had had her first orgasm with him at the age of 39 and a half years old. <laughs> it absolutely stunned me. And I went home and I thought, what do I do now? <laughs> and that, too, went in and out of the five complete drafts of the biography before I got down to the final draft of the biography. And finally, I thought to myself, I've written about a woman. And you have to ask different questions about a woman's life than you do of a man, especially when a woman is a professional person and a writer and so on and so forth. 
And to my great relief and joy, Carolyn Halbrin published her book called Writing a Woman's Life at just about the same time, where she said pretty much in, in much finer language uh, what I've just said to you tonight. And I felt that, uh, in effect, she had given me permission to do what I was going to do anyway, which was to write about all of that, and I did. Uh, I, I, to just expatiate on that for a moment, do you feel that there are things that there is obviously been a, a climate of increased candor in writing about biographies. More and more can be said, uh, but there are still limits, clearly. Only what are those limits? Are they limits that we define or that our subjects define or that the society we live in defines? Can I go a little further? Yeah. Yes. I, I, I set limits for myself. I give you an example. Beckett died not long ago just about the time that uh, my Beckett biography was being reissued. And I had the opportunity to uh, add on to it the last 10 years of his life. And I decided not to because there's a great deal of information in those last 10 years of his life, which I think is private. He lived it as a private person. He lived it with private people who aren't in the public eye. Some of them are very young and would be terribly hurt. Some of them would be emotionally um, distressed uh, in the sense of psychological distress were I to write about that. So I chose not to because I think it's just too soon to do that. Whereas with Simone de Beauvoir, who lived all of her life in the public eye uh, and who wrote about most of it, I felt that there was very little uh, which was uh, off limits for me. And so those were decisions, very broad general decisions. There were other many more Refined within those two lives, but those were two of the major ones that I made. Jim, yeah. there's one other problem. If you're writing a biography in more than one volume, you have to be very careful not to slam any doors in your face in the first ah, volume. That's interesting, yes. and that is extremely important. I mean, if you, I, I have, I've been walking on eggs a lot of the time, trying to tell the truth, but not offending members of the family or survivors. And luckily, the first volume is so long ago that this this isn't always uh, this this isn't a constant problem, but it's going to get more and more of a problem as I go on. And obviously, uh, it's very important to keep at least up until the last volume is published um, on the on the good side of um, of informants and members of the family. That's yes, that is. Uh do biographers owe it to the public to be quiet wretches? What? Quiet wretches? wretches? I'm just reading the question. No. <laughs> no. Is the biographer like a dutiful wife of the important biographical subject? Well, actually, there is something to be said about, about this subject, I suppose. Uh, is there, do you ever feel that there is an element uh, of competitiveness or resentment in that you are... are writing about someone else's life in such tremendous detail and with such great concentration over a period of time that you do end up subjugating yourself to that person in a certain way. Is that ever a conflict? Subjugating oneself. Well, I certainly think... Well, you're writing... Well, go ahead. I certainly think if um, biographer's ego begins to intrude, it becomes unpleasant, uh, off-putting. After all, one buys a book to read about a person, and one doesn't want to hear too much about the personality of the writer. 
I know you think very highly of Liani Dell, but I, reading so his sure biography of James, <laughs> frequently get the feeling that he's, you know, sucking on his pipe and telling us what a great friend of Henry James he is. <laughs> and I rather wish there was a little less of the, the, the forced, um, the forced uh, intimacy and a little more of Henry James. Uh, yeah. Ego is a very dangerous thing in biography. However, mm. there is this strange relationship that does develop between biographer and subject, and it's one of the most mysterious relationships in literature. Mm-hmm. To what extent is one living that person's life and actually sharing in it and in a voyeuristic way participating in it? One thinks too hard about biography. One... Um, gets kind of embarrassed. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on that note, (laughs) thank you very much.